Well, let's go ahead and start with a word of prayer, um, and then we'll do a couple of house cleaning things, and then jump right into Matthew chapter 25. So let us pray. O gracious God and most merciful Father, who has vouchsafed us the rich and precious jewel of thy holy word, assist us with thy spirit that it may be written in our hearts to our everlasting comfort, to reform us, to renew us according to thine own image, to build us up into the perfect building of thy Christ, and to increase us in all heavenly virtues. Grant this, O Heavenly Father, for the same Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Um, just a reminder that this is indeed the um, last class, uh, at least for the next four weeks. God willing, I'm going to be on vacation, and uh, I will be back, and then we will resume this study, um, provided that we are not back in the church by that point. Um, we are having a service, as many of you know, on Wednesday, this coming Wednesday, just something to sort of get us over the hump. We're going to be socially distanced. We're going to be outside. There's no communion involved in the service. Just something to create a, a sense of community, because that's the one thing that we've been missing more than anything else. Uh, but for the time being, especially with uh, the rising cases here in South Carolina and with the potential for Charleston becoming a hotspot, uh, the Vestry and I have discerned that right now we're going to continue to broadcast services and do our best to keep in touch with you with the daily devotions and with Bible studies and classes. Um, we will be taking some breaks from time to time so that the staff can get their vacations in. As you can well imagine, this has been a very stressful time, so everybody needs a little bit of a break. But God willing, we'll be um, ready to hit the ground running uh, by late August, early September. So just keep in touch and uh, say your prayers. And um, in the meantime, we're glad to be with you to be able to do this via technology. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up. We're starting a new chapter in Matthew chapter 25. This is a really a continuation of the same message that Jesus has been conveying in the latter part of Matthew chapter 24. He's talking about the return of the Son of Man in glory and the need for people to be ready for that. So we're going to go ahead and read through um, the, really the whole of Matthew chapter 25. It's a rather short chapter compared to the last one. Uh, we're not going to get through the entire chapter today, I don't anticipate. But nevertheless, because these three parables that we have before us today go together as a set, it's important that we read them together. So Matthew chapter 25, beginning at verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. 
He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the 10 talents. For to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, did it not to one of the least of these, you did it not to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. We said last week, as we concluded Matthew chapter 24, that Jesus was stressing to the disciples the suddenness of the, his return in glory, what theologians sometimes refer to as the parousia, what we refer to as the second coming. Jesus says, no one knows the time or the hour, not even the Son of Man, he says, knows. Only the Father knows. And the point that Jesus was making is that given the suddenness, the unexpectedness of his return, we are to be ready at all times. As Christians, we are to be vigilant. We are to be on the watchtower, anticipating the return of the Savior, because it could happen at any moment. And Jesus continues this theme on through the chapter that we are looking at today, Matthew chapter 25. And as I turn to these three parables, and as I said, you can see they all go together because they're all dealing with the main theme, the sudden return of the Son of Man and the necessity of being ready and what it really looks like to be ready. Because these three things go together, it reminds me of a scene from American history. Uh, one of the most famous American victories from the Revolutionary War, uh, the Battle of Trenton. It took place on the day after Christmas, 1776. It was a period that was very low in terms of morale for the Continental Army. The Americans had been driven out of New York and across New Jersey, and they had been bottled up in portions of Pennsylvania. Um, in fact, George Washington, writing to a friend, had come to the conclusion that pretty much the game was up, that the Americans were not going to gain their independence. But toward the end of the year, in the hopes of ending the year on a positive note, Washington developed a plan to attack a British column near Trenton, New Jersey. Uh, these were actually auxiliary troops. They were Hessians. They were mercenaries hired by the British. They were, for the most part, Germans and Prussians. And Washington decided that he would attack this Hessian column and uh, defeat it if he could at the end of the year, and perhaps that would boost morale. Unfortunately for Washington and the Americans, the weather really turned foul just at the time that they were supposed to launch the attack. And it's come down to us now as the thing of legend. 
uh, he was going to have to cross the ice-choked Delaware River, hence the picture that you saw on your scene just a moment ago, that famous scene of Washington standing up in the boat. Uh, probably that's not exactly the way that it happened, but standing up in the boat as they're crossing the ice-choked Delaware River. When they crossed to the other side of the Delaware River, they had to march nine to 10 miles south to Trenton to attack the enemy column. And they found themselves caught in a blizzard. The roads were absolutely terrible, treacherous. Um, many of the guns were sinking down to their hubs. Um, men were getting frostbite. It was terrible. And because it was the day after Christmas and because of the weather conditions, the Hessians did not anticipate that the Americans, even though they'd had some inclination that Washington was up to something, the Hessians never believed that under those conditions, Washington would attempt to make an attack. And furthermore, it was the day after Christmas. And if you know anything about the Germans, you know anything about the Prussians, uh, they celebrated Christmas in a big way with lots of wine and with lots of lager. And they had not posted any guards thinking that the weather was so dismal that no one in their right mind would attempt to move an army and the, under those conditions. Well, you know what happened. Washington did move the army. Uh, at least a portion of it, about 2,400 men. They fell upon the Hessians. The Hessians were caught completely unprepared. And two-thirds of the Hessian force surrendered on the spot. The Americans suffered only a handful of casualties. It was the most lopsided victory, really, of the entire war. And it was such a profound morale boost, which is what Washington wanted it to be, such a profound morale boost for the Continental Army, that it helped them to make it through the next winter, which would be the worst winter of all, the winter at Valley Forge. Now, the point in telling you that story is that here is a perfect example of crack troops being caught completely by surprise, not anticipating that the enemy might fall upon them at any moment, being drunk, literally, as well as figuratively, they were drunk, they were unprepared, no guards had been posted, and the enemy attacked at a moment when they least expected it. And the result was tragedy for them. Well, we have a similar situation here in Matthew chapter 25. That's what Jesus is saying is going to happen to many people when he returns in glory. Because he has tarried for so long, many people have come to the conclusion that they needn't worry, they needn't be prepared, that it's not going to happen in their lifetime. And Jesus is saying that just like those Hessian soldiers in 1776 at Trenton, New Jersey, many people are going to be caught completely by surprise. All three of these parables in Matthew chapter 25, therefore, are about being ready as Christians, being ready for that great moment, the climax of all of history, when he who was to be lifted up upon the cross would appear again, this time no longer as a victim, but is the great king of glory who comes to judge the quick and the dead. All three parables, as I said, are about this theme. That was certainly the case with the first parable that we look at, the parable of the 10 virgins or the wise and the foolish virgins. We have five who are prepared, five who are not ready. But everybody is surprised at the coming. Nobody has really anticipated that it's going to happen on this particular night but some are ready, some are not. In the case of the talents, it's the same thing. The master entrusts his servants with his goods. Uh, in this particular case, talents. We'll talk more about that in a moment, what the talents were. But he entrusts them with talents. He goes away, and we're told he's away for a long time. And they don't anticipate his return, but all of a sudden he appears, and they are taken by surprise. The same is true with the separation of the sheep and the goats. In all three of these parables, it's a picture of the return of the master suddenly and about the necessity of being ready. All three parables have points in common. Now, Jesus told three different parables because there are other points that they don't hold in common, but there are some things that they do hold in common, and that's why we take them as a set. First of all, in each one of these parables, as I've already pointed out, the Lord's return is sudden and it's unexpected. So what Jesus is trying to convey to his listeners is that that is the way it's going to be when he returns in glory. You'll recall that when Jesus first appeared on this earth, even though the Old Testament prophets had foretold the Messiah would come, even foretold where he was going to be born, where he was going to arrive, and so forth, most people, especially those who should have been prepared, were not. 
In fact, the very first people to come and worship the Christ child when he arrived were people who came from afar, Gentiles, not Jews. So in each case, the Lord's return is sudden and unexpected. In each case, the Lord's return results in an unalterable division between those who are ready and those who are not ready. In the case of the ten virgins, you'll notice that five are ready and they are welcomed into the marriage feast. Five are not prepared. Their, oils have, their oil has run out. Their lamps have gone out. And as a consequence, they are shut out of the marriage feast. They stand knocking on the door, begging to come in, but we're told they are locked out into the outer darkness. The same is true with the talents. At the very end of verse 30, we read that the master has the worthless servant cast into the outer darkness in that place where there is a weeping and a gnashing of teeth. And the same is true with this parable of the sheep and the goats. We're told that he separated the sheep from the goats. The sheep came into a place of pasture, and those who were the wicked, the goats, that is to say, are sent into eternal punishment prepared for the devil and his angels. So in each case, the Lord's return results in an unalterable division. That's what Jesus is saying is going to happen at the end of history. He's going to come suddenly, unexpectedly. When he does, there will be an unalterable division between those who have been prepared for it and those who are not. And here's the third thing that all three of the parables have in common. In each case, those who are not prepared are surprised. They're surprised at the fact that they have been rejected. In the parable of the ten virgins, they are absolutely dumbfounded that the bridegroom has shut the door and they can't get in. The same is, is true with, with the servants. The two servants who are prepared, they are praised by the master. The one who is not prepared, the one who has not done what he was supposed to do, that is to invest the property for the sake of his master, we're told that he is shocked when the master is angry with him. So in all three cases, what you are going to see is that people are surprised at the rejection. So these three things in common, the Lord's return, the master's return, sudden, unexpected, that return results in an unalterable division between those who are prepared, those who are not, and in each case, those who are locked out, shut out, are absolutely surprised at the rejection. Now, what that tells us, and this is very important if we're going to interpret these parables correctly, what that tells us is that all three of these parables are not about what we would call unbelievers. All three of these parables are about what we would call the visible church. Now, we've talked about that distinction before. Now, the visible church is what we see on a daily basis. It's what we see every Sunday when we come to worship at St. Philip's, at least when we're able to gather physically. We see the visible church, people who are on their knees, who are saying the words of the liturgy, who are singing the hymns, who are standing and professing the creed, presumably without having to cross their fingers. That's the visible church. But the Bible teaches that within that visible church, there is what is known as the invisible church, and those are the true believers. Those are the ones who actually have a relationship with Christ. Just because somebody is showing up for a worship service does not necessarily mean that they have that life-saving relationship with Jesus Christ. So there is the visible church. Within the visible church, there is the invisible church, the true believers. So all three parables are really about people who we would say appear to be Christians, who go to church, who say the creed, who've been confirmed, been baptized, all of those things, but who may not necessarily have a relationship with Christ. Now, the first of the parables, the parable of the ten virgins, is particularly challenging, and it is a rich parable. Um, so much has been written about this one, more than the others, and we could spend our whole time looking at just this one. Uh, I don't want to do that since this is the last class before we take a break, uh, but we'll see how far we get. Let's just go ahead and read it again, verses 1 through 13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. 
But at midnight there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in to him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Now, it's that last verse that is critical. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. That's the main theme of the parable. But to really feel the thrust and the power of this parable, it's important for us to recognize the things that these virgins had in common. We oftentimes stress the differences between them, the fact that some were ready and some were not. And certainly that is the main point. But that point comes home a lot stronger when you consider the things that the virgins had in common. Consider this, the way Jesus tells the story, you have 10 virgins. They are alike in this respect. They all receive an invitation to the wedding banquet. Isn't that right? All 10 of them receive an invitation to the banquet. Now, anytime a wedding invitation goes out, there are some people who make the list and there are some people who don't make the list. In this particular instance, all 10 of the virgins received an invitation to the banquet. So they are alike in that respect. They are also alike in the respect that they all respond positively to the invitation. Now, Jesus tells another parable in which a king was holding a wedding banquet for his son and he sent out an invitation to the nobles and we're told that not all the nobles came. In fact, many of them made excuses as to why they could not come, so that the king, not wanting to have his son dishonored, sent out an invitation to the people in the streets and in the highways, having them to come in so that the banquet hall might be filled. So there are some stories that Jesus tells in which a wedding feast is being held, an invitation goes out, and people do not respond to the invitation. In this case, all 10 receive the invitation, and all 10 respond to the invitation. So they are alike in this regard as well. Third thing to notice is that they all have some regard for the bridegroom. They all profess some sort of affection for the one who's invited them to the feast. That was not the case in the parable that Jesus told about the nobles. They had no regard whatsoever for the king. That is not the case here. They honor the bridegroom by coming to the feast. Here's a fourth thing to notice. They all confessed the bridegroom as Lord. Now, this is spiritually important because of what this parable is about. Jesus was telling this parable to his disciples because it was about his return in glory. And it's interesting to note that in this story, all of them refer to the bridegroom as Lord. Look at verse 11. Afterward, the other virgins who had gone to buy oil came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. Now, if you're reading from the New International Version, the NIV version, it may say, sir. But the Greek word here in verse 11 is kurios. And in verses 37 and 44, that's how it's translated as Lord. So the ESV translation is correct here. It is Lord. So all four of them confess Jesus as Lord, as it were. Here's the fifth thing. All, in some sense, awaited the bridegroom's arrival. In other words, they all knew that he was going to come at some point, and they were all waiting for it. They were all anticipating it. And here's the final thing that they all have in common. They all, without exception, became drowsy and fell asleep. It wasn't just the foolish ones who fell asleep, mind you, and the wise ones were vigilant, waiting, ready. We noticed that all 10 of them fell asleep. So while we like to highlight the differences between these virgins, it's important to realize that actually they had a great many things in common. Uh, there was a famous commentator in the 17th century who wrote on this parable. It was his favorite parable, and he talked so much about the attributes of all 10 of the virgins that somebody once said, oh, to be one of his foolish virgins. 
So you'll notice that all of the virgins were alike in some respects, but they were different in one very important respect. Some were ready and some were not. So the question we have to ask ourselves, if that's really what this parable is about, then what does it mean to be ready? What does it mean to be among the wise virgins who have trimmed their lamps and are prepared when the bridegroom arrives? Well, based upon what Jesus says here, there are a number of things that it does not mean. To be ready for the return of the Lord in glory and not to be caught unawares does not mean to have merely heard the gospel message. It does not mean that it is enough to merely hear the gospel message. You may have been raised in the church your whole life. You may have heard the gospel preached over and over again, but that, my friends, is not enough. That does not constitute readiness. All of the virgins received the invitation. All of the virgins, as it were, heard the good news. Second thing, being ready does not mean it does not mean that you have responded to an altar call. Uh, those of you who perhaps have been raised in the Baptist church, you know how this works. You get to the end of the service, and the pastor says, every eye is closed, every head is bowed. We're going to sing one more stanza of Just As I Am. And all those who would like to commit their lives to Christ may come forward. It's the great Billy Graham altar call that we're so familiar with. And that was the hymn that they always sang at one of Billy Graham's crusades. And certainly hundreds of people, sometimes thousands of people, would respond to that altar call. But being ready, as Jesus describes it here in this parable of the virgins, does not necessarily mean that you've even responded to an altar call. Many people respond to an altar call. I know one man who's responded to at least 10 altar calls. Every time that an altar call is given, he feels obligated to go forward. Here's another thing that being ready does not mean. It does not mean merely having admiration for Christ. As we've noticed, all of the virgins had some sense of admiration for the bridegroom. They all responded. They were all respectful. So what does it mean to be ready? If it doesn't mean to have merely heard the gospel or even respond to an altar call or even to have admiration for Christ, which is what many people have, what does it mean to be ready it means something more than that. It means something internal. It means to have experienced a new birth. That's what it means to be ready. There are many people who have heard the gospel, many people who have walked the aisle, many people who admire Jesus Christ as a great prophet, as a great teacher. But when the Son of Man returns in glory, they will be caught unawares and they will experience an unalterable division. That's the point that Jesus is making. To be ready means to have been transformed. It means to have a change of life. Keep your finger there in Matthew and turn to John chapter 3. This is exactly what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus, that Pharisee who came by night asking the question, what must a man do in order to be saved? And Jesus tells him, verse 3, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. For that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Jesus is telling Nicodemus that to be ready means to have experienced that new birth. It means to have experienced that transformation. It means to have been reborn by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how you know you are ready. 
and will not be caught unawares when the master returns. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great preacher, put it this way. He said, a great change has to be wrought in you, far beyond any power of yours to accomplish, ere you can go in with Christ to the marriage. You must, first of all, be renewed in your nature, or you will not be ready. You must be justified in Christ's righteousness, and you must put on his wedding dress, or else you will not be ready. You must be reconciled to God. You must be made like to God, or you will not be ready. Or to come to the parable before us, you must have a lamp. And that lamp must be fed with heavenly oil. And it must continue to burn brightly, or else you will not be ready. That's what it means to be ready and to be prepared should the master of the house return at any moment. Now, there are a number of other lessons for us to glean from this parable. As I said, it's a very rich one. Uh, another lesson that we learn from this parable is that it is the crisis that reveals the true state of affairs. It is a crisis that reveals those who are ready and those who are not ready. Keep your finger there in Matthew 25 and go back to Matthew chapter 7. It's been some time since we were back here. This is another parable that Jesus told, but it makes a similar point. In Matthew chapter 7, beginning at verse 24, Jesus tells the parable of the wise and the foolish builders. Both of these are parables about wisdom and folly. And in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. In this particular parable, what Jesus is doing is describing two men who build houses. Now imagine they are building the same house. They've got the same set of blueprints, they're using precisely the same material. The only difference, maybe even using the same workers, the same construction company, the only difference is where they build. One builds on the rock, one builds on the sand. Now, outwardly, the houses are identical. But then a crisis comes. A flood comes and sweeps through the area. And it is that crisis that makes the distinction between those who are wise and those who are foolish. The wise one being the one who built his house on the rock, the foolish one being the one who built his house upon the sand. The point that Jesus is making in that parable and in the parable of the ten virgins is that it is the crisis moment that will make the distinction. It is his return in glory that will reveal ultimately. You and I cannot look at a person and say, well, they're a believer or they're not a believer. This is not intended for us to, to examine other people. These parables are told that we might examine ourselves and determine whether we are in fact ready. Whether we have built our house on the rock, whether we have the oil in our lamps so that when the master comes, at whatever hour he appears, we might be ready for him. Now, at this point, the question that should be in your mind is, well, then how can I know for certain? <laughs> how can I know for certain that I have experienced this new birth without which no one can enter the kingdom of God, this new birth without which I'm going to be caught completely by surprise, unawares? Let me see a show of hands up there on the screen. How many of you want to know if you're going to be ready? I sure hope so. Well, the answer to that is, are you living for Christ now? You'll know if you're going to be ready if you are living for Christ now. So many people think that they can put it off until later. But if Christ could come at any moment when we least expect it, the trump shall sound, the dead shall be raised, if that were to happen today, and there's nothing to say that it can happen today. Most of us get up and we live with our lives. 
We don't even think about Christ's return in glory, but should it happen today, would we be ready? Well, one way to know is to ask yourself, am I living for Christ now or am I living for myself? For whom am I living? Turn to Galatians. I know we skip around in the Bible, but it's important for us to understand that the Bible is giving us a unified message. And here's what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, beginning at verse 22. You know these words very well. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. You know if you've experienced this new birth, if you have the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life. If your life is characterized by love, joy, and as I've said before, it's not the fruits of the Spirit, plural, it's the fruit of the Spirit, like a clump of grapes. You get them all, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If those are the things that characterize your life, now I'm not asking the question, am I perfect? Do I love perfectly? Am I a joyful person perfectly? I'm not asking that question, but I am asking you the question, do you see yourself growing in these things, growing in these graces? Are these the things that characterize your life? If they are, then you know you've experienced the new birth. And if you've experienced the new birth, then you know you will be ready should Christ return, even if it were to happen today. Now, there are a couple of other lessons that we can glean from this parable. As I said, there's a lot here for us to do. We could mine this parable for years to come. But let me just give you three more lessons. One lesson is this, the coming of the bridegroom may be delayed. That's one of the things that Jesus is saying here. As I said, when Christ first appeared on this earth 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem of Judea, many people were not ready for it. The very people who should have anticipated it and should have been waiting for it, namely the Jewish religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, were caught completely unaware when Christ appeared. The only people who heard about it were a few humble shepherds and wise men, Gentiles who came from the East. Everybody else missed the event. And it's because there was 400 years between the last prophet speaking in the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew. And so here we are 2,000 years later. Jesus has ascended to the Father. He promises he's coming back, but he hasn't come back so far. And what happens? Well, what generally happens is that we become drowsy, just like the women in this story. So one thing that Jesus makes very clear is that the bridegroom may be delayed. For how long, we do not know, but he may be delayed. Only a few were ready for his first coming. Even fewer, I suspect, will be ready for his second coming. Peter, in his second epistle, says this, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowless, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So the parable makes it very clear. The Lord may be delayed in his return. But he is delaying his return. Why? Not because he's indifferent to the plight of human beings, but because he is patient, longing for as many people as possible to be saved. Second lesson is this. The Lord, and this, of course, is the main point, when the Lord does come, he will come without warning. In fact, we're told he will come when we least expect it. Luke chapter 12, beginning at verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Lord, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. 
And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there will I store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now here again is another parable about wisdom and folly. But the point that I want you to notice in the parable of the rich fool is that it was that very night when the man who had had a bumper crop is saying to himself, soul, relax, take it easy. It was that very night that his soul, his life was demanded of him. None of us knows when the Lord is going to return in glory. And when he does, there will be that unalterable division. At that point, it will be too late to change your ways. And even if it doesn't happen today, none of us knows how long we're going to live on this life, in this planet. God could call us home at any moment. We all know people who have been taken from us suddenly, unexpectedly, either by illness or by accident. None of us knows. The Lord may call us at any point. He may return at any point. He will do so without warning. Here's the third point, final point for this particular parable. Lost opportunities cannot be regained. Once the door is shut, no one can enter the wedding feast. Many will stand on the outside and they will cry out, Lord, let us in. But once the door is shut, as I said, there is this unalterable division that takes place. There is a finality to God's judgment. That's what the author of Hebrews says. He said, it is appointed man once to die, and then there is judgment. I want you to understand, it's so important that we understand this. The decisions that we make for Christ in this life will determine where we spend eternal life. And once the Lord returns, once he calls us home, there is judgment. There is no second chance. That is why God is lingering, Peter says, so that people have as many opportunities as possible in this life to repent. But once it happens, once the crisis moment comes, then it is done. The lost opportunities cannot be regained. Paul writes, but now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day. Of salvation. Don't put it off until tomorrow. Don't think that you can get your life together at a later point. Today is the day because no one knows. There's another lesson. I didn't put it up there on the screen, but it came to me as I'm sitting here. There's another lesson that this parable teaches us. It teaches us that salvation is non-transferable. Salvation is non-transferable. You'll notice that when the foolish virgins ran out of oil and they went into town to purchase it and all the shops were closed, they came back and they asked the wise virgins for oil and the wise said, no, if we give you our oil, then we will have none left. Now, that's significant because when we read this story at just at face value, we think to ourselves, well, that was sort of uncharitable. I mean, we've been taught our whole lives from the times that we are children that we are to share, right? Why didn't they share their oil? That's not the point of the parable. What Jesus is saying is that salvation, it doesn't matter if your parents were Christians. It doesn't matter if your spouse is a Christian. It doesn't matter if your children are Christians. Nobody gets into heaven by riding on somebody else's coattails. Salvation is not transferable. That's what the oil represents. The oil represents salvation. It represents the lamps burning. 
The decision about salvation cannot be made for you. Nobody can stand before the Lord on the day of judgment when the trump sounds and he, he appears before us and the books are open and everyone is being judged. You cannot say to the Lord when he says, why should I let you into my kingdom? Well, my mother was a devout believer. Or my children came to know the Lord and got serious about religion. Or, you don't know, I had some wonderful Sunday school teachers when I was a child, and they taught me Bible verses and hymns and all that sort of thing. The Lord is going to nevertheless press the question. He's going to say, but why should I let you in? What have you done? Salvation is non-transferable, my friends. The decisions we make in this life, and we must make them, will determine where we spend life eternally. So this parable is a parable about the need to be ready. That's what it's really about, the need to be ready. Well, we come now to verse 14 and the parable of the talents. Likewise, a parable about readiness. But this parable is not about the need to be ready so much as what it actually looks like to be ready. What a newborn person really looks like as they are living out their days in that interim between Christ's ascension and his return and glory. Now, this parable, pretty straightforward like the rest. Jesus' parables are very simple. They're not simplistic, but they are very simple. The basic facts of this parable is that Jesus, or that master in this case, entrusts servants with talents. Now, a talent is not a coin. It was a measure of weight in the ancient world. It's very hard to calculate, but imagine somebody giving um, another person a gold bar. You know, going to Fort Knox and you get gold bars. In this case, the master gives out gold bars. Now to one, he gives several gold bars. To another, he gives a few less. And then finally, he gives one uh, to the third servant. The point here is that he is given a large amount to each. Some have more than others, but, but all are entrusted with a large amount. And yet the point of the parable is not really about money. A talent can be anything. Your talent can be anything that God entrusts to you. Bishop J.C. Ryle said it can be your gifts, your influence, your money, your knowledge, your time, your strength, your intellect, all things, in other words, that are useful for Christ and for his kingdom. God gives those to you. If you're a Christian today, you have spiritual gifts. Every believer has at least one spiritual gift that can be used for God and for his glory. The master entrusts these talents to his servants with the purpose of them being what? With the purpose of them being used. He's given this large amount to each of the servants, each according to his ability, that they might be useful. Two of the servants, of course, are faithful and make use of the talents. They invest it wisely and produce even more for their master. But one of the servants is lazy. That's the key word. In my translation, he's described as slothful. It's a better word, really. It's an older word, but it's a better word, slothful. He has been given, he's been entrusted with something, but he doesn't use it. He buries his talent in the ground. And then when his master comes and demands to know what he's done with what has been entrusted to him, he accuses his master of being ungenerous. Now that, of course, is not the case at all. Because actually the master had entrusted him with something of great value. The spiritual lessons are pretty straightforward. You and I as Christians, professing Christians at least, members of the visible church, have been entrusted with gifts. Some of us have more gifts than others, but if you're a believer, we all have gifts. And those gifts have been entrusted for our care that they might be used in the service of Christ and his kingdom and in the service of others. We are to make use of those talents. One day, the master is going to return and he's going to demand to see what we have done with what we have been given. Now, the first servant received more than the others. 
But the point is that he did something with what he had been given. The second servant didn't receive as much as the first, but the point is that he did something with what he had been given. The master is not critical of the third one because he had been given less than the others. He's critical of the third one because he did less with what he had been given. So as Christians, God, if we claim to be believers, we have been entrusted with certain things, certain gifts. It may be your money. And you, you may have a lot of money. And if you've been given a lot of money, God is going to require an accounting of what you have done with your material possessions. For some of you, you've been given time. There's no such word as retirement in the New Testament. What are you doing with the time that you have been given? Are you using it for the sake of Christ and his kingdom? Your intellect, your money, your strength, whatever it is that God has given you, the question is, if God were to come today, open the books and make an accounting of your life, would you have given yourself over in service to him? Number of lessons to be gleaned from this parable as well. First, a day of reckoning is approaching. Jesus spoke at great length about judgment. This is going to come as a shock to some people, but did you know that Jesus talked more about judgment and hell in the New Testament than he even talked about love? Now, I don't think that's because Jesus was dismal or gloomy or Jesus was trying to frighten us into the kingdom of God. We all know that does not work. But what Jesus was doing was warning us. To be forewarned was to be forearmed that a day of reckoning is approaching. Here's something shocking that this parable also reveals, that we're going to be judged according to our works. Now, that strikes many people as shocking because we have been taught our whole lives that the gospel is about grace. We're saved by grace through faith and not by works. Isn't that what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2? Absolutely. But that doesn't mean there is no proper place for works in the Christian life. Paul says we are saved from something, from sin, from judgment, from wrath, but we have also been saved for something. What? For good works. That's what James says. James gets a bad rap. Martin Luther called James the epistle of straw. Uh, but on this particular situation, in this particular instance, Martin Luther got it wrong. Here's what the Apostle James, and James was an apostle, Luther was not. Luther was a great man, but he was not an apostle. But here's what James says in his epistle. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. The reformers used to put it this way. They said, we are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. In other words, to be reborn is to be refashioned into the image of Jesus Christ. Now, this is not surprising to us. Jesus says precisely the same thing if you go back to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, beginning at verse 18. Jesus says, A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So it does no good to say that Jesus Christ is Lord if he is not li living as Lord in your life. Third lesson is this, and we've already alluded to it. No one is judged by the amount of gifts they have been given. No one is judged by the amount of talents that you have been entrusted with. Maybe, as I said, somebody has more gifts than you do. That's not the point. The only question is, what are you doing with the gifts that you have been given? Each is judged by what they did with their amount. Here's another lesson. There will be no excuses on that day. 
that slothful servant had all kinds of excuses as to why he didn't use the talent that had been given to him. But in the end, the master would not abide by any of the, any of the excuses. Instead, he did what? He took the slothful servant and threw him out because the excuses were just that. They were excuses. They were not valid. And as we've seen in the other parable, the final lesson is this. Many are going to be surprised. This slothful servant is surprised. He's dumbfounded when the master orders him bound and thrown out. Many will be surprised indeed when Christ returns and makes an accounting. Now let's see if we can get through this other parable rather quickly. I know we're right at the mark, but because I give you five minutes grace in signing on, you're going to have to give me five minutes grace in signing off today. All right. Parable of the sheep and the goats. All three of these parables, as I said, make the same point. We must be watchful. We must be ready. But they each expand on this in a slightly different way. The first parable is about the impending judgment. It's going to come in an hour when we least expect it. Second parable is about being ready, taking what God has given us and using it, investing it for the kingdom, not for our own passions, our own desires, for the things that are temporal, but for the things that are eternal. The third parable is about the judgment itself. What is the judgment itself going to be like? Well, there are a number of lessons that we glean from this parable as well. You know the story. Uh, the master's going to come. He's going to separate the sheep from the goats. Verse 32 says, before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the earth. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. This parable teaches us that the true test of discipleship, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, the true test of a disciple of Jesus Christ is love. It is love for others. In particular, Jesus describes them as the least of these. Then he will say to those on the left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer saying, truly I say to you, as you did it not to one of the least of these. You did it not to me. Who are the least of these that Jesus is describing? Well, in this parable, the critical word is brothers. When you did it to the least of these, my brothers. It's interesting. Jesus is not referring to neighbors here. In this particular instance, he's referring to brothers. Now, we all know the story of the, the, the Good Samaritan, in which Jesus defines what it means to be a neighbor. But he uses a different term here. He uses the term brethren or brother here. What Jesus is referring to in this parable is fellow Christians. One of the true tests of discipleship is not just how we treat our neighbor, but in particular, how we treat those who are of the body of Christ, the families, the members of the family of God fellow believers? Do we show them love? When we see a fellow believer, if you see a member of your family who is suffering, a son or a daughter or a niece or a nephew, wouldn't you automatically come to their aid and their assistance? Well, Jesus said it should be all the more true when we see believers, Christians in dire straits or in difficulty, we should come to them. It's really interesting. The Apostle John, who wrote a number of books, everybody's familiar with the Gospel of John, but he actually wrote a whole series of books in the New Testament. He wrote the book of Revelation as well, and he wrote the epistles of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. In his epistles, in 1st John, the Apostle gives three tests of true discipleship. 
three tests that help us to know whether we are really following Christ as we should. The first test, he tells us, is that we believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. You can't be a disciple of Christ unless you really believe in him. That's the first test. Second test is that we obey his commandments. It's exactly what James was talking about. It does no good to say that Christ is Lord if you're not living as though Christ is Lord. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So that's the second test of discipleship. First is that you love God, you recognize him. Second is that you obey his commandments. And the third test that John gives is that you love other Christians. There's an old poem that says, Oh, to love the saints above, that indeed will be glory. But to love the saints below, well, that's another story. And sometimes it's true, isn't it? Sometimes it's easier to love non-Christians than it is to love Christians. Sometimes it's your family members that drive you crazy more than anybody else. And that's true in the church as well. But this is a real test of discipleship. This parable reminds us that we are going to be judged, yes, by what we do. But we're also going to be judged by what we fail to do. Sins of commission as well as sins of omission. Do we love others? When we see believers in need, are we caring for them? That was one of the things that distinguished the Christians in the early days of the church's history. The early Christian writer Tertullian said that the pagans were constantly saying to each other, look at these Christians, look at the way they love each other. In the book of Acts, we're told that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Why? Because if they saw anyone in need, any one of the brethren who was suffering, they sold their own possessions and they made sure that every one of the fellowship of God was taken care of. Listen, if we loved each other with that kind of a love, what it would do is it would provoke the outside unbelieving world to jealousy. The unbelieving world would look at the church and say, look at the way they care for each other. I don't know what it is that they have, but I want it. I want to be a part of that kind of community. I call this the cheers mentality. I want to go where everyone knows my name. I want to go where there is a place where I'm accepted, where I am loved, where I am cared for. It's what we're all longing for, my friends. And Jesus said the way we treat our other believers, our fellow Christians, is a test of discipleship. So what are these parables about? About being ready. None of us knows when the master of the house is coming, my friends. He may linger for some time, but one thing is for certain, we are closer to that day than the disciples were when Jesus first spoke these words. So the master could come at any moment. If he comes, will you be ready? Have you invested the treasure that he has entrusted to you? Are you using it to build up his kingdom, to spread the good news? And are you loving your fellow Christians as you love yourself? That's how we know that when the bridegroom comes, we will be ready. That's how you can be certain that your lamp is filled with oil, your wick is trimmed, and you will not be caught unawares. It may seem like a somber message to us, but it's really spoken in love. It's a warning to us. I mean, let's be honest. If there was a man who saw that a bridge was washed out and he saw a car coming down the road, ignorant of the fact that the bridge was out, wouldn't it be the loving thing to shout as loud as he could to try to catch the driver's attention? lest he drive off that bridge and into oblivion. That's what Jesus is saying to us here in Matthew's chapter 24 and chapter 25. That's what he's saying to his disciples. He's saying, I am coming. I will set this world right. I will wipe away every tear from those who are mine. But if you want to be one of those, you have to be ready. Invest what has been given to you for the sake of the kingdom and love 
the brethren. So that whether the master of the house comes in the morning or at noonday or in the evening, you may rejoice to behold his appearing. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, there may be some, even within the sound of my voice today, who have never made that decision to give their life over to you, completely over to you. This thing called the Christian life is not something that we can toy with. It is of the utmost importance. Jesus doesn't want a part of us. He wants all of us. Grant us the grace, Lord, to give our lives over to him, to give our lives over to him who gave up everything for us, that we may be ready when Jesus appears, that we may rejoice on the day of our salvation. And if there be any here today, Lord, who have not made that decision, grant that they might not tarry any longer, but come home this very hour. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.